0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I got an email um, last week, and uh, with a with a very pointed question uh, that uh, broke my heart a little bit. So, so I wanna I wanna try my best to, to answer that. Um, so let me just set the stage before we get to the question. Um, so, so. In the beginning of Parshas Vayechi, we, we have Yaakov Avinu is, is coming to, to tell the children of Israel, and to all of us forever, when, when Mashiach is actually coming. Like, when that when that of the final fixing of the whole world, or the, the completion of God's plan, that which, which God had in mind from before He created the entire world, when is that actually going to become, you know, fully manifest in the world? That's the end of war, the end of hatred the end of hunger, the end of any obstacles to serving God, when are we going to see the, the fullness of the, the vision of creation like realized in front of us, right? So Yaakov Avinu is about to tell us. He, he's about to leave the world. He's about to tell us. And um, and he actually gives us instructions how it's going to happen because it's it's sort of very cryptic. The Ishwitzer points this out. It, it seems like a just a sort of like, normal words, but we know that with great tzaddikim, there's no such thing as normal words. Even their casual conversation is loaded with Torah, right? So he says to them, he says to his sons, he says, he says, gather together and I'm going to tell you. But that in itself is, 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 is the great message. If you gather together, <laughs> meaning to say, if there's unity among you, then this is, this is, then that's, that's what's going to create this, this, this occurrence, this, this great completion, Right? So, so Yaakov Avinu, it says that the Shekhinah left him before he was able to. This, the, the divine presence left him before he was able to actually communicate what what, 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 when this date was going to be, when this time was going to be. And yet later on, you see that uh, Yaakov Avinu has Nevoi, he's giving them. He has prophecy. He's giving them blessings, all the different sons' blessings. So you see that the Shekhinah returns. So. So, so how are we supposed to understand that the Shekhinah left, but that the, the Shekhinah is coming back? So, so what was the flaw, so to speak? What was, the, what was the disconnect, so to speak, in terms of him being able to communicate that initial, that initial idea about the time of Mashiach? And we have to say, or I'd like to suggest, I would like to suggest that the brothers didn't fully come together in other words that, that vessel that that clee in order to receive that message for the shekhinah to, to land so to speak right it was present for it, for it to be able to you know come into full 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 manifestation it, it that 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 didn't happen because the coming together didn't fully happen okay so now we're getting a little bit more toward what i wanted to discuss so so why didn't where, where do we see that the the coming together of the brothers didn't fully happen? Because didn't we just have in Parshas VaYigash, we have Yosef reveals himself, and he he tells all the brothers, you know, like, like, I forgive you, and, and and everything like that. And it seems like all the family has finally come together. You know, it's like this climactic end to the story. Except, it's actually not the end of the story. The end of the story actually comes at the end of Parshas Vayechi. It comes one Parsha later all the way at the end of the next Parsha. So it's sort of like the end of the story is very much sort of buried in the Chumash. And the end of the story is like very heartbreaking. Because what happens is is Yaakov Avinu dies. Now this is uh, 17 years later after he's revealed himself to the brothers. So that's a long time, 17 years later. And once Yaakov Avinu leaves the world, um, by the way, we say the the rabbis teach Yaakov Lomes that 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 that, that ya- Yaakov never died. But what does that mean? Well, Yaakov is the, the mida, the quality of truth, right? We say Tita Nemis which means that truth never leaves the world. Truth never leaves the world, right? So anyway, so after Yaakov Avinu, at least in terms of his flesh, leaves the world right? He was buried. He was mummified, actually. It's it's very surprising. You see it actually right in the Chumash that he was mummified. Yosef HaTzadik was mummified. It's very surprising. But they were really in the throes of the the height of the empire of of Egypt, you know? Anyway, so it makes sense. But but that aside, um, the brothers write a letter and they say to Yosef, they send it to Yosef and they say, Our father requested really that you should really free forgive, forgive us. <laughs> and the the Gomorrah actually in Yovamos the, the footnote here says Yavamos 65B, says that Yaakovino you never never wrote that letter, never <laughs> instructed the letter. The whole the whole thing was a was a forgery of sorts, right? Or the, the message, but but but, in order to foster peace, this would be an example because they were trying to bring peace into the family. This would be a permissible sort of like you could bend the truth in a in an instance like this because it was in order to to do a great societal good to bring peace to the family, right? But 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 the but the larger point. Let's let's get to the larger point. The larger point is that. Um, you see that the brothers thought that they were really never forgiven. And that Yosef, that they thought that Yosef was just waiting for Yaakov to leave this world for him to be able to exact revenge on his brothers. So that means one of two things. Again, we're trying to address the question when Yaakov says by his deathbed, gather close, why wasn't that gathering a complete gathering? So let's You can say one of two things. You can say one of two things. You can say that the brothers never forgave themselves. Um, Or Rabbi Freeman was suggesting that the brothers never never fully believed that God forgave them. And, you know, each one... And they're interconnected, by the way. They're interconnected. Each one is so powerful. And then... I mentioned last week, and now we're getting more toward why I'm bringing all this up. I mentioned last week, well, how did Yosef forgive his brothers? <laughs> right? Because you see that Yosef Joseph, like, Joseph is like the, the shooting star in terms of kedusha, in terms of holiness in the whole world. And his whole life gets like thrown tremendously out of whack, gets sold into slavery, he's in a prison for <laughs> 12 years. An Egyptian prison, right? This is like horrible on top of horrible. But he says, you know something? He says, it all came from God. It all came from God. And don't worry, I was sent down here to create this deliverance to keep the whole world and all of you guys from starving today. So I wanted to suggest that the reason, the, 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 the way that Yosef was actually able to forgive his brothers is because he was able to forgive God. If he wasn't able to forgive God for everything that had happened to him, he wouldn't have been in a place where he would have been able to forgive his brothers. So so I, I, you know I put that online and I, I, got a, I got a message from someone who said, "I have to forgive God and I don't know how. How do I forgive God? will you address that question? And so I thought to myself, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess I could do that. And so I started thinking, and then I, my first thought was, wait a second, forgive God? How do you forgive God? I don't even, I don't, I don't even understand that idea. I don't, I don't understand that idea at all. I can't even wrap my mind around it, you know? I know, I've heard over the years, different Hasidic rabbis, the, 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 the Kleisenberger Rebbe, the the briditch of Rebbe, these are two famous rabbis who are famous for talking about you know god you you forgive our sins and we will will forgive what you know what 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 we see you know and and we'll be even right but i mean it's it's it sounds good but but how do you do it right it sounds good how do you do it so Let's just talk about the problem a little bit. You see you, you can look in the Torah and it says if you do these mitzvahs I'm going to bring the rain in the right times and you know there will be no miscarriages and you know your your crops are going to flourish and everything like that. So it seems like there's a there's a certain transactional type of arrangement that, that the Torah itself is proposing. That if you do these things, you're going to get these things back. Right? And... We have to talk more about that. Because, because what we really say is... By the way, while that's there and that's true, it, it also talks about the... that That's sort of a subset of a larger concept. The larger concept is that, is that really our great reward is really stored up in the next world. Nonetheless, there are things that we are rewarded for in this world, right? Okay, it's a very big topic. But, I, but, but nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is that one's expectation that if they do certain things, that they're going to get certain blessings back, is not unfounded. There are verses in the Torah which, which, which directly suggest this, this type of arrangement right? So how many people are there? So many people, right? All of us at some point in our lives have fallen into this category, probably, where we've, we've done what we feel is our part, and we feel as though we're not, we're not, that God isn't keeping His side of the arrangement, so to speak. And it's, it's, it's devastating. It's devastating. And a lot of people hit a brick wall at that point and and you don't know what to do. You you, You don't know what to do. What am I going to do with this relationship? Well, you can deny your own feelings, but that only works to a certain extent. Right? What are you going to do? How are you going to go on? You can uh... You can decide. You can decide that you know what God. I'm boycotting you, <laughs> until until you do what I want you to do. <laughs> then I'm not going to be. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. But can I tell you something? God is holding all of the cards, <laughs> and the card table, and the world that the card table and the cards are on. <laughs> so it's there isn't a lot of leverage there. <laughs> you know. You know anything about business? You're, you're basically in a zero-leverage relationship. So people try it in their emotionality. But it's, you know, if you think through it just a few more steps, it doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. And then also part of you just wants to be in a good relationship with God because the love of God is planted in every single person. So, so it's hard not to love God when it's been planted inside you, but then when life becomes so convoluted and twisted and knotted up and the relationship becomes so knotted up, then then what do you do? How do you forgive God? Right? So I'd like to suggest just an answer. It's coming from me, but an answer in in one line. No, no. Try to explain it, but here's what I feel is the, is 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 an approach. How do you forgive God by believing in Him even more? Say it again. How do you believe God by believing in Him even more? So, so what does that mean? What does that mean? Because if if we say God controls everything, but we also say that God is good. And what's happened is is that we've reached a certain point in our lives where we've just reached a brick wall and we feel as though I don't see any of the good coming. But, But God is God and God knows more. God is God and God knows more. And God really does know better, and that's tough. But if we want to liberate ourselves, and if we want to liberate our own souls, and we want to restore this relationship, then what can we do? Then just believe in Him even more, and say, "Okay, I, I don't get it. This is this. It doesn't make any sense to me. But You're God." And you're good. And I can't, run, where can I run that I'm running away from you? Where can I go? Where can I hide? I can't hide in this world, and I can't hide in the next world. Wherever I go, this world to the next world, you're right there. It's all you. I just have to believe in you even more. So, okay, that's, that's, that's that subject. <laughs> Let's move on to another subject. Um, I had something sort of like, I don't know, it struck me as sort of freaky, you know, but I don't know if it will resonate with you guys, but it's, The story itself is 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 I think worth sharing, and then the the timing aspect you can take or leave, but but anyway, one of the in terms of my own sort of spiritual journey toward toward uh, keeping Shabbos and and, uh, and and all the rest. Um, you know, it's a, you know there there are a lot of things with with all of us with you know everyone's journey. There's a lot of different factors. But but this was like a this was like a big kind of like key moment for me. Okay, so I was 24. I was on a midnight bus from Amsterdam to Paris. Okay, and I was by myself, and I was thinking about being on my deathbed as an old man. Not chas v'shalem, God forbid, suicidal thought. I was just thinking about the end of my life. And I was thinking, you know what? The only thing that really kind of matters is how I feel about myself on my deathbed. Because if if I'm like, you know, ripe old age, right? And I'm lying on my bed, and I'm saying, well, I'm miserable now, but I was happy in my 20s. Like, that seems to me to be like, that's not going to make me feel better at that moment. It's it's not. (laughs) I want to feel good about myself at that moment before I leave the world. And that's important. And I thought to myself, if I'm lying on my deathbed, and I'm just talking about me right now, and I haven't kept Shabbos by that point in my life, I'm going to be really mad at myself as I'm leaving the world. And I don't want to be mad at myself when I'm leaving the world because that's going to be a big drag. It's going to be a big drag. I don't want that. So I thought to myself, well, that means at a certain point I have to start keeping Shabbos. I mean, there's not, you know, at at a certain point, you know, when you think of it in the present tense, well, do I want to do this? Maybe one day I'll do this and then that would be a good thing. And then, you know, it gets all airy-fairy and, you know, it's very conceptual and all the rest. But if you're thinking of it from you're about to leave the world and you're looking back on your life, at a certain calendar date, it's got to begin, right? A certain Friday night. It's got to be, okay, I'm keeping Shabbos, right? It's, it's, it's a little more um, meat and potatoes, right? When you look at it from the end backwards. So, anyway, that was, how many years ago was that? That was 31 years ago. So yesterday, um, you know, I'm just sitting down. It was after lunch, and I'm kind of looking at my books, and I just pull out this book, Right I just pull out this book that I haven't looked in and I hardly ever look in not that it's a bad book it's just I have a lot of books so I just pulled this one out and um it's uh, it's an English uh translation of the or highlights of the uh, Malbum's commentary on uh, on on uh, on the torah this is on the first book of the torah and um so. So here's what he writes, Parshas Vayichi. Remember Yaakov Avina, We said is lying on his deathbed. He's an old man, right? Does that sound similar to what I was just talking about? So the Malbum writes, at the end of a person, the end of a person's life is seen as the measure of his entire life. One who, who lived all of his days in pain, but who eventually ended up happy and successful will forget all of his travails and consider himself as having lived an entire life of peace and happiness. Do you hear how that's the exact same thought? What he's saying is, the Mahabam is saying, how you feel about yourself when you leave the world is how you're going to feel about your life, even if you had a really hard life. Like Yaakov Avino, he had such a hard life. The end of his life was happy, so he remembered his entire life as happy. And then I realized that it was 31 years ago to the day that I had had that thought, when I opened this book and I saw this from the Malbim, because it's almost New Year's Eve here, the on the secular calendar, and I remember I got to, I got to Paris ere of New Year's, and I remember running into some. I was all alone, but I ran into some people that I knew at a movie theater in Paris. I felt wow. so fancy. And they invited me to a New Year's Eve party. I was like, look at me, you know. Yeah. It was kind of a crummy party. But anyway, <laughs> I was just so happy to meet someone and have some place to go, you know. Anyway, so, but I remember, yeah. So, okay, maybe it was off by a day, I don't know. But, this and then, the last time I shared this thought, every once in a while, if, if I'm speaking before a group, I shared the thought that I just told you. The last time I shared this thought, someone heard it, and in the crowd, you know, I'm always, you know, sensitive to people's reactions as I'm speaking. The person shook their head, and it's like, no, how you feel on your deathbed is not really how you're going to feel about your life. I thought, wow. I I'd sort of, huh. Really, is that really you disagree with that? And so I was so happy to see that the mobum is like saying it. You know, a hundred years ago, like you know, that's no, that's that, that is what it is. You know. Oh, I. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, just wild, you know. Okay. I did that trip to the. F- Sorry. It's uh, another topic, another topic, another topic. So. So, so something, something very, uh, for me, very profound. Uh, you know, Parshas Vayechi, Again, this is this is the last Parsha of of, uh, of the Book of Genesis, Sefer Brashis, and it's unique in the entire Torah. It's unique in the entire Torah because every single parsha between the parshas has a white space between the parshas, the Torah portions of the week. Every single one. Except one, parshas vai, which goes straight from last week's parsha into this week's parsha. There's a, a one-letter, there's a one-letter separation between the two parshas. It's unique. And everybody has come for thousands of years, they're trying to explain why this is the case. A very fascinating idea. Now, when Yaakov leaves the world, remember, because the beginning of this week's Parsha is talking about the death of Yaakov, when Yaakov leaves this world, and Rashi brings this, that's basically the, the beginning of the Egyptian servitude, when we start to become slaves in Egypt. Okay? So you see, somehow, that there's, a, that there's this correlation... Between the space between the parshas being filled in, right? There, there being no empty space, and the beginning of slavery happening. Very strong connection here. But let's. How can we explain this on a, on a deeper level? Okay? So first we have to understand what the white spaces in the Torah are. Okay? So so it's a very way out thought, but, but you, you see this, Rashi explains this in the beginning of Parsha's Vaikra that where you see white spaces in the Torah, this is where Moshe Rabbeinu was taking time to think about what Hashem was telling him to write down. I'm sure like we can't even imagine how exalted Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy is, remember, even the Messiah is not going to be as great a prophet as Moshe. He'll be greater in other ways. But in prophecy, Moshe remains the greatest prophet of all time, forever. Okay, That's why any messianic figure who comes along and tries to uproot the prophecy of Moshe, we reject that completely. Because no prophet is greater than Moshe. Moshe is the great, even including Mashiach. Moshe is eternally the greatest prophet. Mashiach will be greater in other ways. Okay? Very important. So anyway, so we can't even imagine how God is dictating the Torah letter by letter to Moshe Rabbeinu. But at certain moments, so to speak, in my own words, Moshe Rabbeinu's mind is completely blown. He goes, wait a second, I got to think, I got to think, I got to <laughs> I need some time to absorb that, right? So then you'll have like a little white stretch. And then it goes back into it. Okay? So motion needs, is taking time to think to absorb it. Okay. So interestingly, interestingly, what you have is all the white space is gone when the slavery is beginning. Or the way Rip Shlomo is putting it, do you know when slavery is beginning? When you no longer have time to think. When you're no longer thinking about your life, when you're no longer thinking about the Torah, right? Because the white space is the time to think, and all the white space is filled in. At the beginning of this week's parsha, when we're told slavery begins with the death of Yaakov, so all the white space is gone, all the time to think is gone. That's slavery. Okay. Okay. So I want to say I want to I want to say my own thought on this, which is, you see, the Ramban says that the Torah is black fire on white fire. So what does that mean, black fire on white fire? So the black fire is those revealed, tangible aspects of the world. Okay? Things that you can see with your hands, uh, rather, things that you can see with your eyes, things that you can touch with your hands, that's the black fire. The white fire are those things that are there, the spiritual realms that are there, but you can't see them with your eyes, and you can't touch them with your hands. All right? Remember, one of the the biggest sort of breakthrough ideas that a person can have if they really want to understand the depths of Torah is to understand that the Torah is not a book. You can find it in book form, but if you think that the Torah is a book or a scroll. You have no concept of what the Torah is. The entire fabric of crea- of reality is made out of Torah. And as Rabbi Wolfson says, God takes the letters of the weekly Parsha and weaves them together into the fabric of reality of that week. Right? So we're actually living in Torah. And of course, each person is a letter in the Torah. So you're you see this, the the world itself is the most dynamic dynamic sort of like ebb and flow of Torah itself, okay? So again, don't think for a moment that the white space on a Torah scroll is just, you need some paper to put the ink, right? You need some cloth to put the ink. So where am I going to put it? So I put it over there. But, but it's, no, it's not much more than paper, right? Wrong! (laughs) Wrong! (laughs) This is a blueprint of the universe. The black fire, the letters themselves, those are the tangible, touchable aspects of reality. The white fire are the spiritual realms that are there. You just can't grasp them. But they're there, okay? So again, between these two parshas, normally there's a big white space, meaning to say, The white fire is there. But it gets all filled in by black fire. And we're told that that's the beginning of slavery. So I want to say like this, when does slavery for a person begin when they can no longer see the white fire? When does slavery for a person begin when they're no longer in touch with the white fire, when they're no longer in touch With all of those aspects of reality which are right here, you just can't see them and touch them. See, what we're dealing with is the the smallest, almost most infinitesimal aspect of actually what's out there. It seems ginormously huge to us in front of our eyes. Like we can't even grasp the physical reality of the hugeness of the universe we get we can't even and yet at the same time that overwhelming thing that we can't even grasp of our mind the physical universe in itself is an infinitesimal part of reality (coughs) it's crazy it's so big you'll never know how big it is and yet it's tiny (laughs) you'll never know how big it is and it's tiny Because God is infinite. <laughs> and God is keeping the entire thing going. Right? Okay, so this is, this is the, the idea that, that if, you, if you want to escape being a slave to this world, you have to know how much more to this world there actually is. If you want to escape being a slave to this world, you have to be in touch with the white fire. How much more to this world there actually is. And you know, I wanted to say that the headquarters of the white fire, that's Shabbos. Right? If you want to really connect to the white fire, connect to Shabbos. Because on Shabbos, especially if you're keeping Shabbos in a Torah way, on Shabbos, you realize there's, it's just, life is bigger. The world is bigger, right? It just, everything is just bigger. Okay, so I want to play with these ideas of black fire and white fire some more, but I want to apply it in a different direction now, okay? Which is the first letter of the Book of Breshis and the last letter of the Book of Breshis. Okay? Because they're really, their bookends and they're partners. And a very interesting correlation between these two. Plus, we can say that the Book of Breshis itself is a microcosm of the entire Torah. Because everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. Okay? So, the first letter of the, of, of the Torah, of the Book of Breshis, is the letter Bays. Okay? Now, the last letter of the book of B'reishis is a final mem from the word Mitzrayim, final mem. So you have, what's, what's interesting about that is that it spells the word B'am. And we say in the Shema, V'dibarta B'am, that these words, B'am is like these words should be in, in your mouth. So B'am is interesting for, for a lot of different reasons, but just, on a, just for the here and now, Bays is the first letter of the Written Torah, and Mem is the last letter, not just of Sefer Brashis, the Book of Genesis, but it's also the last letter of the Talmud, <laughs> because the, the the Talmud ends with the word Shalom. So the last the last letter is is Mem. So in other words, Bam when it says you should put these words in in your mouth, it means the words of the entire Torah, from the first word of the first letter of the Written Torah to the last letter of the Talmud of Torah Shabal Pet, right? So, Bam, you see, stands for this expansive concept of the entirety of the Torah. Okay. But let's go more into the letters themselves. So, so I'm, what I'm telling you right now is from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, one of the great students, a couple of generations later, of the Vilna And he sort of received the Kabbalistic tradition from the Vilna and uh, he says like this. If you, if you can picture the letter Bez, right? So Bez is closed on three sides, but it's opened on the fourth side. Okay? Now, before we get to Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver, just it's such a good thought, I just want to throw it in first. You see, the rabbis say that, that the, the spine of the letter Bez, that vertical line, right? you can go only so far back in terms of understanding the beginning of creation, and at a certain point, you hit a wall, right? That's the vertical line the spine, so to speak, of the letter is of Raishis. At a certain point, you hit a wall, and before that, you don't know. Like at a certain point, scientists just go, okay, that's the best we can do they turn it over to philosophers and Jews and whatnot. it's sort of like okay now it's your job we, that's as far as we go right but, but for all of us there's only a certain amount we can know and so as I always like to say before the black fire bays of reishis there's a white fire aleph right because that's, that stands for Hashem because Hashem existed before the world was created right so anyway but let's get back to Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver. So the letter Bez is, is open, is closed on three sides, but it's opened on the fourth side. A final Mem is like a box, and it's closed on that fourth side. So it's like a base, but that final line is drawn in. Right? You got it? So again, what did, what did we say? What did we say Black Fire is and what's White Fire? So Black Fire is those aspects that are revealed, The white fire is that which is there but it hasn't been, you're not in touch with it yet. It hasn't been revealed yet but it's there. So he says, you know what that final line is of the letter B's that's missing? The reward for tzaddikim. The reward for the righteous in this world. In other words, it hasn't been revealed yet. It's still on the level of white fire but it hasn't become black fire yet because creation hasn't run its course. It hasn't we don't have Mashiach yet. It's not, it hasn't been revealed yet. Isn't that interesting? But that final line of the letter Baze, which is missing, stands for the reward of the righteous. And it's there, but it's there on the white fire level, not on the black fire level. But what's going to happen at the end? It's going to get filled in. Because the last letter of Genesis is a final Mem, which is that Be's with that final line drawn in, but now it's on the level of black fire. Because in the end of days, we're going to see the reward for the righteous. So, and if you want to now understand the word bum as being the entirety of the Torah, the written Torah and the oral Torah, when the entire Torah becomes revealed... Right. That's when we're going to see the reward for the righteous. That's where we're going to see the fullness of the realized vision that God has for the world, and God has had for the world since before the world was even created, and which we're in the process of bringing down right now. Okay. Let me just uh, let me just close with just an illustration of this. <clears throat> so there's a teaching in the in the Talmud that says that that. Whoever um, mourns the destruction of Jerusalem will celebrate. Will be will be able to celebrate when it becomes rebuilt. Okay. So. So I'll tell you how I understand that. And. It, it's like this. You see. See, imagine you're watching a movie, like a romantic comedy, right, or, whatever it is. And the, the, the standard arc of, of all of these love stories is boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Right? That's that's kind of how they're structured. So imagine you're watching one of these movies and you know at a certain point, you know, one of the lead characters goes into a grocery shop and there's a funny worker in the grocery store and you're like, Oh that guy, I love that guy, he makes me laugh. And you're watching the entire movie and you're only focused on one thing. When's the funny guy from the grocery store gonna show up again? <laughs> And you get to the end of the movie and the the man and the woman are reunited and people are like applauding and they're laughing and they're crying in the theater. They're so happy the couple has gotten together and you're just going like, oh, the guy never showed up again. <laughs> like, what, a, what a disappointing movie. <laughs> like, I, I really like that guy. What happened, you know? So what's the problem? What's, what's the problem with that, that situation? You... You were not tuned in to what the main storyline was. That's the problem. You were not connected with what story was being told. You see, the story of the entire world is the love story between God and the Jewish people. That's that this is the, this is the story that's being told since the beginning of creation. Since before the world was created. And so if if a person is feels pain that there's no of Hamikdash, there's no holy temple. If you if you feel a little broken hearted that we're not right now all together in Israel, all of us together right now, then that means if you're feeling something like that, that means that you're emotionally invested in what the real storyline is, the storyline of history, the storyline of creation, and it means that when ultimately all the prophecies are fulfilled, when we see the Jewish people return, when we see the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, when we see you know, Mashiach as you know this, this grand leader representing the entire world. By the way, Reb Shlomo says a very important point, which is that what, why is it that Mashiach is also um, descended from converts, right? Because remember, the, the Messianic line goes through King David, and King David's great-grandmother is Rus, who, who, who converted to Judaism. right? And then it goes even further back, Moab, who comes from the relationship between Lod and one of his daughters. So you see, like, Mashiach has a very interesting history, at least on one side of the family. And that's so that Mashiach should be a representative of the entire world. In other words, his lineage is coming from spiritual highs and spiritual lows, from Jews and non-Jews, because contained within the Jewish Messiah is going to be a representative who can speak to the entire world, and who the entire world will be able to look to and see themselves in as well. And so when we see all of that, when we see all of that, we're going to see the filling in of that final line of the base of breishis, right? We're going to see the full picture revealed. And, you know, just just one more point. You know, as much as I'd like to say that, you know, it's worlds within worlds within worlds, so that everything is contained already within the book of Genesis. But the Zohar is already saying that it's all contained, the entire Torah is all contained within the word breishis. And that even in the bays of breishis, <laughs> So if you can imagine like an upside-down pyramid balancing on the letter Beis of Brachis, the entire Torah is balancing on the bays of Brachis. How do you see that? How do you see that? Because among the different things that the letter Bayes stands for, Bayes is the number two. It's the second letter of the Aleph Beis. It stands for free choice. Free choice means I can do this or I can do that. It's two. It's free choice. And where does the free choice that God give us gives us come from? From the fact, remember the letter B's now. B's stands for free choice. Where does the free choice come from? From the fact that the reward for the righteous has not been revealed yet. You see, because if every time I did a mitzvah, all of a sudden I got an email, oh, you've been offered this new job. <laughs> or, Or I just did this, and then all of a sudden someone drives over to my house with you know, a suitcase of cash. If you saw that there's this one-to-one revealed correspondence between doing good and getting this giant reward, you wouldn't have free choice. Where does the free choice... Remember, Bayes, the Bayes of reishi stands for free choice. I can do this or I can do that. Where does that free choice come from? From the fact that that final line of that bays hasn't been drawn in yet. The fact that we don't see the reward for the righteous yet which means contained in the letter base, you have the entire Torah and the entire Heshkaf the entire philosophy of this world. You have free choice because you don't see necessarily that what you're doing is necessarily going to pay off, and yet we see that, yes, that is going to be filled in, and everything that you're doing, even if it's on the level of white fire, all the white fire on a very deep level, or at least a giant quantum Chunk of it is going to be revealed so that we see the truth of God before our eyes. This is is the story that we're all in the middle of. We're all in the middle of this story. And remember, we believe in reincarnation, so we're in the middle of our own lifetimes, in the plural. We're in the middle of our own lifetimes, and we're certainly in the middle of the grand story of the history of human society. We're in the middle of the story. So Hashem should bless us that we should have the strength to hold on. And that if we need to forgive God to understand that, you know, whatever I thought before, it doesn't mean my pain isn't real. It doesn't mean that my disappointment isn't real. But God is so epic. God is so epic. I am never, ever, ever going to go wrong believing in Him even more.